Amen. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to the Gospel of John, or the first letter of John, 1 John. And uh, today we're going to be covering two passages or two verses in Scripture inside of 1 John. And if you don't have a Bible, please uh, take one of those black Bibles that's located probably somewhere near you on one of those pews that you're close to. Please take that if you don't own a Bible as a gift from our church to you. Um, it's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Uh, my name is Eric Baker. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and so we just thank you guys for gathering with us uh, this Lord's Day. So in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, this is the word of the Lord. It says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We are thankful, God, that it does not return void. Uh, We are thankful, God, that it, it is the very words from the throne room of God. And so in this place and in our hearts today, we ask you, Lord Jesus, that your promises would ring true, that you would not forget your promises and that we would not forget your promises. And Lord Jesus, that you with pinpoint accuracy would speak into every corridor of our hearts, that those, Lord, who do not know you, that you would save them. And Lord, that those who do know you, Lord, that they would be assured of their salvation. In Christ Jesus we pray, amen, amen. You guys can be seated here this morning. In 1 John, particularly in the passages that we're going to be covering today, uh, John, in, in this entire letter, is going to both be revealing false converts in the church while simultaneously assuring true converts. And he starts out in this first verse that we're covering today where he, he literally is speaking to people within his church. John is, is possibly in his 90s by now or at least he's an older man by now and he, he reaches out to this church in Ephesus and the churches surrounding Ephesus and he says to them, my little children, I am writing to you. At first that can seem a little odd to us but One of the things that that John is trying to communicate in this letter is his love and dedication uh, to this church that is is wavering in its faith. Some people have started to believe weird things about Jesus. They've also been convinced that they themselves do not sin and that they've left the church and in leaving the church are trying to cause dissension. They're trying to lead other people to also lead the church. And so you can imagine if you're sitting in the pews and people are leaving church and they're saying new things about Jesus and simultaneously they're saying things like we don't sin anymore, um, then this can lead you to, to be wandering in your faith. You're, you're, you're questioning your confidence in your own salvation through the person and work of Jesus. And so John is writing this letter um, to his friends, to the church members, to the churches, and, and he is trying to warn them not to sin while simultaneously encouraging them in their salvation. But he does both of these things because he loves them. There's a symbol of intimacy here. 
um, my little children. This this letter, like is mentioned, is going to reveal false converts while simultaneously comforting the true believer. See, sometimes the most loving thing that you can do is say some really hard things to people. We live in a culture that has a, a really hard time of, of having those tough conversations. We often don't have them have a tough time doing that with our children, but we can have a tough time doing that as a community of believers. That we don't know how to handle uh, tough statements from the scripture or hard truths from the word of God. And so John is writing this to, to reveal those things. The first thing that we need to get here as he continues writing in this first verse, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John is writing, one of the purposes of his writing is this, is believing wholeheartedly and encouraging and reminding these church members not to sin. If I had a first point this morning, it would be this. Don't take your sin too lightly because God doesn't and you shouldn't. All right? Don't take your sin too, too lightly uh, because God doesn't take it too lightly. Brothers and sisters... Um, we are called to not sin. And that can be a real tension for us because what do we all know? That we sin. And yet the mandate and the imperative, the command of Scripture is that you and I are pursuing a sinless life though the Scripture never gives this connotation that you and I will reach sinless perfection this side of heaven. But that's where the bar is set. And yet we have lived in this Christianum, and they were living in this Christianum, or this idea of Christianity, uh, where, where this was no longer the objective. We're going to do some basic, you know, I grew up in something called children's church. Anybody go to children's church when you were a little kid, right? So we're going to do some basic children's church lessons to kick us off here this morning. And in children's church, one of the things that you quickly learned about was this idea of sin. Now, in the, in the Old and the New Testament, there are several Hebrew words and New Testament words that reflect what is sin. Sometimes it's that big fat word transgression. You've heard of that, right? Or iniquity, right? Or, or, or just sin, disobedience. Sin inside the New Testament, and particularly in this moment, when, when John says that you may not sin, that's a non-negotiable. That's the calling of the believer, that you should not sin. Well, what does sin mean? Sin means to miss the mark. It, it means to wander, to deviate, to, to get off course. It means to stray. It means failure to miss the goal, or, or failure to meet the goal. The goal of the believer is what? To live for the glory of God. Those apart from the union with Christ uh, are, are living for the glory of self. And so you see this dichotomy here. You see this tension that for those of us who are in Christ, what is the purpose of your life? I promise you, you don't have to read the purpose-driven life, nothing in against that totally but here, let me just tell you what everybody's purpose is in here it's to live for the glory of God in whatever you do in whatever you do 
whatever occupation that you're resting in, whatever geographical location you lay your head in, whether that's a student, a parent, a child, an adult, you work in a cubicle, or you work out in the middle of a field, wherever you are, whatever you do, that you do that to the glory of God. To not do it to the glory of God is to sin. It is to miss the goal. It is to miss the mark. It is failure to reach that mark. And, and we simultaneously, though we are Christians, many of us are following Jesus, trying to live for his glory, we simultaneously are living in a world um, and possibly are a person that is apart from Jesus. Therefore, we're living for our own glory. A person that lives for their own glory, they go to work every day because they want a paycheck. That's not why the Christian should be going to work. Everything from intimacy to your bank account, for those of us apart from Christ, is centered with you in the middle of it. Unless you're united with Jesus. And so John wants the reader to once again to be reminded not to take their sin lightly. Our tendency is to deny our sin. Our tendency is to justify our sin. Our tendency is, is to cover up our sin. Our tendency is to rationalize our sin, especially when we love to do that by comparing whatever it is that we do to the person sitting next to us. We really don't seem that bad. It was just a small inappropriate joke, right? It was a small lying on our taxes. It was a small um, lie. It was a small deception. It was, it was small. We, we even like to church it up by saying we don't sin anymore, but we, we make mistakes. I, I made a mistake. No, it's sin. And it separates us from an all-holy God. I love the guys at the Bible Project, and this is the way that they define sin. They say that sin is about more than just doing bad things. It describes how easily we deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. Anybody guilty? You've made a bad decision and you've spun it in such a way to justify what you've done. See, one of the marks of the fruits of genuine salvation in this found in those who war against that mentality. Those who are apart from Christ are completely given in to that mentality. But if we are saying that we are in Christ and proclaiming to be followers of Jesus, then the goal, the honoring thing that we do with our lives is one of obedience. Not deceiving ourselves, not spinning illusions to redefine our actions and making our bad decisions into good ones. See, we must be aware that sin is not generated from something you do on the outside, but it's driven by your very nature. Again, children's church, what makes you a sinner? If you go out here and steal something, guess what? That doesn't make you a sinner. You're a sinner, and what do sinners do? They steal stuff. Right? Saying a lie doesn't equate making you in that moment a sinner. No, you're a sinner, and that's what sinners do. They, they lie because it's in your very nature. It's that you're totally depraved. We've got to understand that. See, when we focus in our lives on, on just you know, not doing blank anymore, 
Anybody got something to fill in that blank with? Maybe this week we'll ask as a go around the MCs. What's your blank? Like, what 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 are you doing? What's your blank? But we can really focus on that, can't we? I just don't need to do blank anymore. How many of you guys have ever said, God, that was the last time I'll never do blank ever, ever again. And 30 minutes later, you find yourself doing blank again. Right? An hour later, a week later, that commitment, that drive to stop doing whatever fills that blank inside of your life has, has waned. See, and, and that is a, a religious mentality. That's not a gospel mentality. Now, are there things that we should and should not do? Yes. But we're missing the point whenever we're just saying we've got to just stop doing blank. When we focus so much on not doing whatever that is anymore, see, we're removing the bad apples from our life tree, but we're not doing anything about the diseased root at our core. Our tendency is to to think behavior modification is sanctification. You guys know what I mean by behavior modification, right? We're trying to do this to our kids all the time, right? It's a constant ploy of parenting we just want them to stop blank right and it it is tiresome it is it will wear a mother and a daddy out trying to get their kids to stop doing blank whatever that is right that's behavior modification that's not sanctification what's sanctification big church word right sanctification is the process that the holy spirit through the person and work of Jesus, by ordination of God the Father, is in the process of removing all of those sinful things within our lives, the desires, all the things that cause us to miss the mark. That through our entire lives, the reason why Jesus doesn't save us and just send us on up into glory is that he's using our lives as evangelism, but also to shape and mold us into the likeness of Christ. But behavior modification does not always equal and does not equal sanctification. If you have a drinking problem here today, did you know that you can stop doing that without Jesus? You can stop that blank. If you have a porn problem, you can stop that blank without Jesus. It doesn't make you any more saved, though. If you have a consumer problem, if you're bad with money, Guess what? You can stop all that without Jesus. Just listen to Dave Ramsey. Every time he says, yells, screams at you, and, but every time he says something about Jesus, ignore that part, but follow all of the baby steps. And guess what you'll do? Become debt-free physically, and yet you can be debt-free physically with your money, and yet spiritually bankrupt. It's not about behavior modification, all right? It's about soul transformation see um i i i long for one of the things i agree that has not happened yet at mission is is what is known as recovery groups or redemption groups these are where you get men and women uh together sometimes separate sometimes together and and maybe they're dabbling in in dealing with different sins within their lives like specifically you can be in a redemption group toward um drug addiction or through alcoholism or um through pornography or through spending or, or through all these sorts of things. And I think that those are great things. I grieve that in the life of mission that we don't have those yet. 
all right? I, I really do. I think that there's a great value in those things. And instead of going to these programs that are out in our community, I believe that recovery and redemption actually begins within the church, and that's something that you and I should be engaged in. So that's, that's something that you and I can pray for, is that God would send us people to help our brothers and sisters and members in those groups. But, but please understand this. As much as I love redemption and recovery groups, if the means is, is, if the goal is ultimately just to stop looking at pornography, or if it's just to stop drinking, or if it's just to stop spending, or if it's just to stop doing whatever that blank is, I believe that we've missed it. See, the idea of recovery group, the idea of redemption group, is that reconciliation to Jesus. Because here's the thing, is, is that without a relationship with Jesus, here's what I've known w- with a lot of my friends, close people that I love, when, when, when they stop doing blank, but they're not reconciled to Jesus, guess what they do? They just fill the blank with something else. Everybody got that? So you and I, we get all, it's at the beginning of the year. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not, I don't have, in the words of uh, a, a fighter right now, is I don't have goals for this year, but I got a system. And for me, I've got a system this year of overall health, spiritual health, emotional health, physical health. So I'm trying to watch what I'm eating, all those sorts of things. But, but I did this several years ago. I became, I, I, I became really overweight. And so to compensate that, guess what I did? I became an addict of something else. Going to the gym. See, I play, replaced one addiction with another addiction. And both causes problems. Both did not do the heart work. Do you get that? I mean, have you ever done that before? All right? I'm not going to do blank anymore. But I'm going to overcompensate by filling that blank with something else. And see, this is the tension for those of us who are in Christ. See, the Bible tells us that, that at the core of it, is, it isn't a drug problem. It isn't a lying problem. It isn't a cheating problem. That it's a worship problem. See, in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, it te- the Bible tells us that we are slaves to sin. Slaves to it. Again, the heart is deceitful. Who can know it? Who can understand it? The thoughts of man are on evil continually. We're slaves to it, brothers and sisters. This is not just in your actions, though. It's your very nature. The best way that I can help understand the way that sin kind of consumes all of us is is I'm going to pull a Pastor Todd this morning really quickly. I'm going to give you alliteration. I've got three A's for you. Sin affects your actions. It affects your attitude. And it affects your affections. Everybody get that? It's not just one silo within your life that, man, it just affects what I do. No, because here's the thing. You and I can do morally good things with a rotten heart, right? How do I look in this dress today? You look great. How's my new haircut? It's awesome, right? So you're doing what is morally right but inwardly your affections toward whatever is going on inside of your life is 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 broken right 
Like we can, we can do things like preach a sermon, lead worship. We can help little old ladies across the street, right? We can, we can give to charity. We can go help down at Hope House. And if, if we're, our, our mindset behind those things is taking selfies so that we can put on our Instagram so that everyone can see us, we've got to understand the action was good, but the affection was broken. Don't we live in that tension? Just got real in here, didn't it? That it's not about the glory of God, that, that sin is about the glory of self. Also, here's two C words to go along with the word sin. So you've got actions, attitudes, affections. But also, there's the sins of, of commission, right? These are the sins that we like to talk about in church. Do not do blank. Do not lie. Do not steal. Do not murder. All right? Do not drive faster than your guardian angel can fly. Which is really bad theology, by the way. But I knew somebody that had that as a license plate on their car. Do not do all these. Don't drink too much. Don't look at her. Don't look at him. Don't covet those people's house. Don't want their cars, right? All of the sins of commission, right? So some of us grew up in a church where that was where it was all about. All the things that we cannot do. Right? Anybody? Are there things that we shouldn't do as Christians? Absolutely. Why, though? They miss the mark. But they don't miss the mark just as, again, as a list of rules. As I talked about last week, and I'm going to talk again next week, it's, it's relational boundaries. And too many times we're not looking at them as relational boundaries. We're looking at them as just, man, we cannot do this. And you're missing the intimacy when you look at sin and your relationship with God uh, as just these rules. So are things that we should not do? Absolutely, because they hinder our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. But we often don't talk about in churches or think of as seriously as the scripture does. It's not the sins of commission, it's the sins of omission. Let's say that in every way of commission, you were morally perfect. You never lied. Kind of like the Snelling boys. Never lied. Never cheated, right? Never backtalked their parents, right? They, when, when you're going through the moral checklist, never did it, 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 right? That'd be pretty awesome, right? What if you did all of those things, but Jesus still had to go to the cross for you? And you begin to ask the question, why? And his response is, you were great at not doing all these things. But you missed the mark by not doing the things I told you to do. Do you see that? It's the sins of omission. So right now, it's asking the question um, of, of saying things like, okay, uh, maybe none of us are thieves in here, okay? Maybe that's an easy one for us to check. Anybody murdered anybody in here? Don't raise your hands because that gets really awkward, okay? Prayerfully, none of us have murdered anybody in here. And so you're like, I haven't commission check. How many of you are making disciples? 
When's the last time you've been to baptistry? When's the last time you shared the gospel? See? See that tension? But we don't take those as seriously. We don't take those as seriously, but the scripture does. It's the sins of omission that not, not only, because again, you're thinking, well, where's the Bible in this? Isn't that the story of the rich young ruler? I was morally perfect in all of these ways. And Jesus agrees with him. Isn't that freaky? Like that young dude knew what he was doing. Like here's all the list of rules. Check. What did he have a problem with? Not with what Jesus told him he couldn't do, but with what Jesus told him to do. Do you see the tension? All right? So we're living in this life, and for those of us who are married, the sins of commission in my marriage would be if I went and had an adulterous affair. Right? But here's the sins of omission. What if I never have an affair, but I don't love my wife? So a lot of people will think, man, you're an awesome husband. You've never cheated on her. But the scripture tells me to do what? Ephesians chapter 5, to love my wife as Christ loved the church. So it's possible to be in a marriage that you've never cheated in, so you have not committed a sin of commission, but you have committed a sin of omission by not loving your wife. Everybody get that? Take your sin seriously my beloved children because God does God does he does so some of us when we hear this that like what I'm talking about and we're like man our tendency maybe is to be filled with shame or to be filled with guilt let me let you know something we're all guilty so that feeling that you feel guess what it's true because we are right that shame for sin, is that all bad? Absolutely not. Okay? But shame is a terrible motivator. Here, here's our tension this morning as I transition to these last two points quickly. Some of us are prone to think too lightly of sin. Some of us in this room, we think too lightly of it. It's just a little joke. It's just a little cheat. It's just a little lie. So on and so forth. You don't think anything about it or not much about it. For others of us, we seem to be crushed under the weight of our sin. And I want us to understand that, that according to the gospel, that both of these ideas are dangerous to our assurance of salvation. See, we're called to fight sin, but when you do sin, not to be driven to complete despair, but overcome sin in the worship of the one who has overcome sin it do you get that some of us in here man you you don't think too much of sin you don't think it's very light for others of us you're crushed under it right and it leads you to this despair it leads you to depression it leads you not to a life-giving joy-filled life and so we're, we've got both of those people sitting inside of this congregation right now and Jesus in the gospel is saying no 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 both of you have missed the point to think too lightly of it is to miss how heavy I think about it and yet simultaneously if you're in Jesus and you're living in crippling despair over something in your past present or future that you've been involved in you're enslaved to it still and both of those extremes 
are not the gospel. So, listen to what John says here. In John's letter here, he says this. But if anyone does sin, anybody glad that's there? Can I get a Baptist hallelujah or something? Thank, thank, thank you, Laura. You're awesome. I love you. All right? I mean, it's some sort of Baptist excitement there. Right? Aren't you glad it just say, it doesn't say just so that you may not sin? Blank. End of letter. Amen. Aren't you glad? Yeah. Just, there you go. Be encouraged. Let's take up an offering because we can't forget that. We are a Baptist church. All right? But that's not what he says. He, he doesn't. Now, again, what is the goal? Pursuit of sinlessness. Because of your relationship with Jesus. But I love this when he says, but if anyone does. That, but if anyone does, guess what it's, it's re, re, referring to? It's, it's, it's implying this, that, that sinning should be the, not consistent within the believer. Anytime you see a non-believer acting like a non-believer, don't be surprised. What are they? They're non-believers. But whenever we see someone united in Christ and they sin, that should be strange to us. Because why? The pursuit is for God's glory, not their own. They're going to pursue Christ's righteousness. But I love this passage. It's, it's a, such encouraging. As, hurry, as heavy as the last few minutes were for us, I, I hope that you will now see the blessing of what I'm about to say, and that is this. is that in this passage of Scripture, it says, but if anyone does sin, guess what? We're going to. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the next thing that we need to understand is, is that you and I are going to sin. It, it, it should be inconsistent in our lives where it was completely consuming. But when we do fall, when we do sin, when we are prone, tempted, and fall into that temptation, the Bible tells us that we have an advocate with us, and his name is Jesus the, the advocate here, the word is, it, it is one who is called alongside. It is one who stands by to help or to render aid, especially in the court of law. It is one who is summoned to the side of another for help, comfort, encouragement, counsel, and to intercede for us. So imagine just for a moment that we're in a courtroom scene here. And uh, I don't know, I won't, I won't use anybody in here. Michael, thank you for volunteering. So Michael is in this courtroom, and, and I'm representing um, God and inside of this courtroom we're trying to determine on whether or not that Michael is is righteous enough if he is holy enough in to enter into my kingdom on this side over here I won't mention any names whoever that person is because I don't want to call anybody the devil I was tempted to call Jonathan to do that but I don't want to do that so over here is the prosecution over here next to Michael Palladino is Jesus Adam Hammonds all right and so in this courtroom of law, as this is being defined, we, we put before us on this big fat TV screen behind us every activity, every action, attitude, and affection, every sin of commission and omission on the screen for all of you, the jury and the judge, that Michael has ever done in his life. And the judge has to determine if he's holy enough, righteous enough to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. 
Now, if you've paid much to courtroom uh, things before, what, what do people often say who are in trial? They'll say things like, I'm not guilty. I am innocent. Um, it was self-defense. It was momentary insanity. And, and the prosecution comes up with hard evidence over and over and over again. I mean, we're watching every attitude, every thought, every deed that Michael Palladino has committed in his very young life. Satan, the prosecuting attorney, steps up, and again, he has perfect evidence. This is Michael on the screen. And it comes time after they uh, ask Michael all these sorts of questions that it, it now comes time for the defense attorney uh, to defend his client. And what comes out of Jesus' mouth at the defense of Michael is something that brings a hush across the room. He begins to ask Michael, did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? And every time after he says that, Jesus looks to the judge and looks to the jury and says, guess what, judge, he did it. Anybody want to hire that defense attorney? Every charge that they bring against Michael, the defending attorney looks at the judge and looks at the jury and says, yep, he did it, yep, he did it, yep, he did it. Yep, he did it, 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 he did it. And I even got some more evidence over here of things that he did that Satan wasn't even aware of. And so judge, he did it. He did all of those things. And yet it says that Jesus is the advocate. See, as Jesus stands up there, he knows the judge really well. They go way back. They're old school friends. And standing by our side in all of infinite past, present, and future, after he's asking the question of Michael, and after Jesus says to the jury and to the judge, he did it. He looks to the judge and he says, and I'll take that one. He did it. I'll take that one. He did it, I'll take that one. He did it, I'll take that one. He did it, I'll take that one. He did it. You, you see the, the process that's taking place here for every guilty verdict because this man stands before an almighty holy judge guilty. The defending attorney, the advocate, the helper, the counselor, the comforter says over and over in eternities past, present, and future, but I'll take that one. I'll take that sin. I'll take that sin. See, he defends us not from a place of our personal holiness and goodness, but his righteousness. We are not the innocent people standing trial. We are guilty. We know it. The jury knows it. The judge knows it. And, and that's the state that we're in. And by Jesus' grace and mercy, do you guys know this term? And it was a kind of a bad movie several, several years ago called Double Jeopardy. But within Double Jeopardy is the idea that a person who has been acquitted of a crime can never be tried and, and found guilty of that crime that they've already been set free from. 
See, brothers and sisters, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we have no fear of double jeopardy. Nothing that you can do in your, in, in your past can ever be brought up to your future to determine your outcome. Why? Because once you step foot into the person and work of Jesus, past, present, and future sins have all been acquitted. The sins that you are even aware of that you are going to commit tomorrow or seven days from now. He's already taken all of those and he took it upon the cross. Through his blood. Through his sacrifice. That's why the Bible can say and, and say this from the past and it be true of us. For there is no what? Condemnation. For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, this is said, what, 15, 1700, however many years ago, and yet it is true for all of us who are in Jesus. The gavel has slammed against the judge's desk, and it has deemed you, not as your own work, but in the person and work of Jesus, that you are completely acquitted. You are completely set free. Your debt is completely paid for. So why would we not go and fight against sin then? Right? If you've been given such a gift, if I've been given such a gift, Obedience changes our affections. We desire to do these things, not because I don't, I don't have any fun. I'm a Christian. No, 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 no. That's, you're missing the point. When Jesus changes your nature, he changes your actions, your attitude, and your affection. He changes what you participate in, and he also changes what you do, thus leaving us to the assurance of our salvation when these things are being put to death. Are you still tempted to, yeah, I mean, every wreck I drive by, I'm tempted to still stare at, right? We call it turkey necking in in the south, or that's the redneck hunting name for it. Right? Are you tempted to do those things? Absolutely. But because of the new nature, guess what? We have a new goal. We have something else driving us. See, our tendency when we sin is to stiff arm Jesus and the church. Have you ever done it? You sin on a Saturday night? Don't think you're good enough to show up on a Sunday morning? Some of you need to hear this this morning. Please. Some of you are having some really difficult moments, and you need to hear this. Jesus, not one time, has ever grown weary of your current situation. And you need to know that. He has not one time ever grown weary of your current situation. Anybody ever made the mistake of swinging kids? We used to do that a lot before we had handheld devices. You know what I'm talking about, right? You go to a family reunion, you grab up a kid, and you swing them. Or you go to a pool, and you throw a kid. That was a mistake. You know why? Because everybody's kid whom you don't even know is waiting in line for you to swing them or to throw them in the pool, right? And what do you say? Uh, One more time, kids. One more time, everybody, everybody understand it? One more time, right? And you fling all these kids whom you don't even know. 
All right? You're just flinging kids or you're swinging them. I mean, you're dizzy. You're, you're queasy. <laughs> right? I mean, you, you're on the struggle bus. And you're like, I can't do anymore. Daddy needs to take a rest. Right? Jesus has never grown tired like we do. He's never said, one more time, one more sin. I ain't got enough in me, Michael, for another sin, but I got one more for you. He has never grown tired. He has taken every one, and he stands before the throne room of God, pleading his own righteousness, not your goodness, but he is reminding God of his promises, and he is reminding him of his infinite work. Oh. How can he do this quickly? Because of what the Bible says. Number two, verse two. He is the propitiation for our sins. Don't be scared of that word, propitiation. It's a great biblical word. He is the propitiation of our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Quickly, what is propitiation? Propitiation, an easy way to remember what this is, is is the idea of atonement, or or a word that I like better is, is satisfied. We learn in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, propitiation by his blood. The sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God, which then allows him to be gracious to us. The ESV study Bible puts it this way, refers to Jesus as the sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. God's wrath, the propitiation found in Jesus means this, God's wrath is satisfied. Jesus, it satisfies everything that God requires of you and I. That's propitiation. What a great theological, beautiful term. It's, this, it's when we sing in, in Christ alone. I mean, even you Baptists, you don't know what to do when we sing in Christ alone because we get to this part where it says the wrath of God is satisfied and some of you are like, you know, you got a little bit of a hand going... Right, I mean, get a little bit excited when you start thinking about the wrath of God is satisfied. That's propitiation. And you think about that. The wage of sin is death, but the pavement has been made. Nothing you and I could do could ever satisfy God's wrath, but what he required, Jesus paid. Nothing, no one can do it but Jesus you need to know this. If you are truly in Christ, when, though your pursuit is sinlessness, you will occasionally sin. And when you do, you have an advocate. And you need to realize judgment is not coming to you. Punishment is not coming to you. Purgatory is not coming to you. Why? Because everything that God asked of you and I, Jesus completely fulfilled in his righteousness. He did so upon the cross when he died. The, the blood of lambs was, was never the the fulfilling propitiation of sin, but the blood of the Lamb, of Jesus, has done this. God could not save you just because he wanted to. Did you know that? If all of a sudden he's decided, saved, he's just made himself out to a liar. He could not save you apart from the death, the shedding of the blood of Jesus. Excuse me. Wow. Sounds so much powerful in a microphone. 
I'm allergic to sin. See, I just, did y'all like that Jesus juke? I was like, yeah, <laughs> crossover, little Jesus juke right there. No, I just, I, I just sneezed. He could not save you apart from the death and the shedding of blood of Jesus. If he did so, apart from that, he would violate his character and his holiness. His justice had to be dealt with. And the only way it was satisfied, brothers and sisters, is through Jesus. We are debtors who cannot pay our debts. The only way that you and I can stand before a holy God, holy just God, is for someone else to pay the debt and is worthy enough, valuable enough, that God deems his payment sufficient. Brothers and sisters, this morning, may we be a people that becomes very uncomfortable with our sin. But let us find comfort in Jesus when we do. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this moment in time. Thank you for your word, Lord. Lord, thank you that you have called us because we want to be in an intimate relationship with you, that you have called us away from sin, that you have told us not to sin. But Lord, we are simultaneously thankful, God, that if and when we do, we have an advocate and we have a propitiation. We have a comforter, a helper, helper, a defender, one who has never grown tired and weary of pleading the cross before God. It is finished. It is finished indeed. So Lord, we're thankful for you willing, willing to come in the flesh and to satisfy your justice. Lord Jesus, may Mission Church become a place where we're really uncomfortable with the sins and the sin in our hearts and our actions and our attitudes and, at, and affections, Lord, our sins of omission and commission, Lord, that, that we don't justify and try to twist them. And yet, Lord, may we find great comfort. In Jesus. In Christ's name. Amen.